0: It is February 14th, 2012, and it's Oregon's birthday.
1: Oh, Oregon, let's do that one more time.
0: And we love Oregon so much, we just had an oregasm all over your ear hole. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Oh. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at ORhistory.com. We profile only the most badass Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Today, for Oregon's birthday, we're going to be looking at yarns. Stories. Tall tales. That tend to hang on for a while. They are usually based in truth. And ultimately, they are true stories. But these tales have evolved and become accentuated over the years. Some details have been forgotten and others certainly exaggerated over time. Take Paul Bunyan. Paul's ax men ate so many flapjacks they couldn't supply the demand. Only the blacksmith made a griddle so large you couldn't see across it when the smoke was thick. Sourdough Sam had fifty men with pork rinds tied to their feet, skating around the griddle to grease it. The batter was mixed in large barrels, and it took a strong cook just to turn the flapjacks, let alone get them to the table. One can imagine that this fanciful tale of a big breakfast is based on the fact that lumberjacks can eat a shit-ton of pancakes. Of course, the question comes to mind, is a yarn history? And it's a legitimate concern on a site such as orhistory.com that prides itself on delivering accurate, analyzed historical interpretations. The straight shit, one might say. And as to whether the yarns are actually history or not, we answer with a resounding... maybe historian and fact-checker, Doug Kank Crispin.
1: Yarns are usually based on actual historical figures and events. And furthermore, they represent a version of historical interpretation. Those that adapted these stories over the decades have added their impressions of the times to these tales. They formed or sculpted these stories to be of value for their own time and place. These yarns are folkloric. They're filled with our state's heritage, and while they may not impart some amorphous quality known as the truth in these stories, they certainly give us a double helping, as big as Paul Bunyan's syrup pitcher, of Oregon's character. In the 50s and 60s, and even into the 70s, there were numerous volumes of these types of Oregon yarns available on the market. Over time, these selections have fallen out of vogue, and are not as prevalent as they once were. A discerning eye can still find them to this day at yard sales, second-hand bookstores, and on the goddamn internets, if you must. And we recommend that you seek them out. In today's podcast, we will be looking at tales from these books collected by Bill Gulick and Ralph Friedman. These historians and folklorists didn't write these sagas. They merely accumulated, edited, and circulated these accounts. And we at Kick-Ass Oregon History feel that these tales are worthy of a resurfacing a remembering. By examining these legends, we'll hopefully come away with a better understanding of how our state has changed over the fleeting years.
0: How far back do these tales go? Well, dear ass-kicker, it would appear that the very retelling of the founding of our state of Oregon is dependent upon the resurrection of a yarn. In the 1830s and early 1840s, Americans were coming by the wagon load to settle in the Oregon Territory. The territory was administered by the Hudson's Bay Company under the watchful, compassionate eye of Dr. John McLaughlin, a subject of the British Crown. Americans, French Canadians, and British all lived as neighbors in today's Oregon and Washington states under a joint occupation treaty. Many former Hudson's Bay Company employees were fine with this frontier arrangement, but many American settlers were bitter about consenting to the rulings from a British representative. In 1841,
1: things came to a head. An American trapper, Ewing Young, died and left a considerable amount of land and a huge herd of cattle without a will or any known heirs. A meeting was called and an executor to the Young estate was determined but wolves and other predatory beasts were drawn to Young's herds. The Oregon settlers finally held what was called a wolf meeting on February 2, 1843. It was agreed that each settler present would be assessed $5 to pay bounties on these wolves
0: and other predators. Some claimed these wolf meetings were concealing a secret agenda and at the second wolf meeting on march 16th 1843 this underlying issue was revealed many in attendance mainly americans and french canadians got what they wanted a resolution was unanimously adopted for the appointment of a committee of 12 to take into consideration the propriety of taking measures for civil and military protection of this colony Two months later, on May 2nd, 1843, in the corner of a warehouse owned by the Hudson's Bay Company at Shampuy, a meeting was called to assert a more American governance of these Oregon lands. No hyperbole, it was truly revolutionary. A period commentator wrote that, as soon as they became aware of the true purpose, most of the French Canadians withdrew. Employees of the company were indignant over the use of the warehouse for what they considered seditious purposes. So the Americans moved to the field outside of the warehouse. A great debate and much milling around the field ensued. Legend has it that famous trapper and mountain man, Joe Meek, shouted out, Who's for a divide? All in favor of the report and an organization, follow me! The yarn states that in the end, 50 men stood on one side of the field, 50 stood on the other, and two undecided French Canadians stood in the middle. Etienne Lucifer hesitated because someone had told him that if the Americans won, the United States would tax him for every window in his house. Eventually, these abstainers were convinced to join the Americans, and by a slim 52 to 50 vote, a territory governed on American principles was decided. The territory would not become a state, however, until President Buchanan made it so with his dashing signature, on February 14, 1859, Oregon's birthday. Joe Meek, the mountain man at the center of the shampoo rabble rouser is an exceptional character of Oregon history, one you should certainly know about, and quite a few kick-ass tales have emerged from his persona. By calling for the divide, he established himself in the ledgers of Oregon history, not as the father of Oregon, for that illustrious title is bestowed upon John McLaughlin. Maybe Meek is more the sperm of Oregon, or Oregon's ballsack. If Oregon was a bastard child, Joe Meek would be our... Mama's dirty little secret. Spending a decade walking the West in his eternal quest for furs and pelts, Meek had more than his share of adventures and was more than willing to embellish a detail or two to a receptive audience. Hand to paw with a wild grizzly bear, walking across the Sierras, some undoubtedly true, others maybe a bit grander or more melodramatic than the original recalling of that incident. And Meek could talk. He was said to have been able to talk the bark off a tree, It was also said that when he spoke, squirrels would drop their nuts and sit on a tree limb and listen. One yarn has meek spinning. You call this bad weather? You call this trouble? You should have seen me and Milton Sublette one time up in the Tetons. We were afoot, we had no victuals, and I'd carried Sublette on my back for eight days cause his leg was broke and him a pot-bellied critter weighing 250 pounds. Do you know what shape my feet was in when we finally got to camp? Well, sir, I set old Sublette down and took a look. I'd been wondering why I'd been sinking to my ankles at each step, and now I see why. All I had left was ankles. For the last 40 miles, my feet had been worn off clean to the instep. One of our favorite tales is from 1829, when Meek was just 19. He was with a trapping party near the Yellowstone River, and a band of Blackfoot broke the party up, and Meek ended up wandering through what is today's Yellowstone National Park. He recalled an almost alien landscape and remembered that the whole country beyond was smoking with the vapor from boiling springs and burning with gases, issuing from small craters, each of which was emitting a sharp whistling sound. Another account can be found in an 1844 letter written after the shampooy vote. Peter Burnett penned that, we selected a tall Tennessean, Joseph L. Meek, for our sheriff. He had been in the mountains with William L. Sublette for eight or ten years, is exceedingly good-humored, very popular, and as brave as Julius Caesar. The first warrant he had delivered to him was issued for the apprehension of a very quarrelsome and troublesome man who resisted Meek with a broad axe. But Meek, presenting a cocked pistol, took the fellow Nolens Volens. Meek was not a lazy man but he seemed to have an indifference to civilized life for most of his early years. His daughter, Olive, said, As long as I knew him, he was perfectly willing to let someone else do the work around the place. When it came to fighting Indians, or hunting, or trapping, or making long, dangerous trips, there were few men as willing and as good as father was. But he had no liking for manual labor. Meek gave up trapping in 1840 deciding to settle down, to use the term loosely, in the Willamette Valley. He was opposed to settling in the woods because of the amount of work required in felling all those trees. His Shoshone wife, Mountain Lamb, had returned to live with her kin and had left their three-year-old daughter, Helen Marr, in Meek's care. Meek traveled to the Whitman Mission, operated by Dr. Marcus Whitman and his wife, and asked Narcissa Whitman a favor. Truth is, Miss Whitman, I don't know beans about raising little girls, so I was thinking, I was wondering. Mrs. Whitman asked if Joe wanted her to take in Helen. That's the idea, yes, ma'am. I know she don't look like much, but she's bright as a button and mine's pretty good, if you're firm with her. And she does need a good home. Mrs. Whitman agreed, and gave the child a much-needed bath, a haircut and some decent clothes. Ooh. On the way to your brother's house in the valley deep By the The
1: Whitman Mission was a convenient resting stop on the Oregon Trail, but was also on land traditionally regarded by the Cayuse Indians as theirs. Ravaged by disease, the roughly 400 Cayuse left in the area around the Mission had immense distrust for Dr. Whitman, and the Cayuse misinterpreted the science of disease resistance and felt that Dr. Whitman only cured whites and left Indians to die. In early November, 1847 a wagon train came through the area that had been afflicted with black measles. Dr. Whitman assured the immigrants that the disease was relatively harmless, keep the children quiet and clean, give them plenty of fluids and a light diet, and they will recover in a few days with no ill effects. Which was a correct diagnosis for these Euro-American children. But the disease spread quickly through the Native American children in the vicinity of the mission, and within a few weeks a hundred and ninety-eight Indians lay dead.
0: Oliver James washed in the
1: rain no longer
0: The Cayuse wanted revenge, and they got it in a big way. On November 29, 1847, the Cayuse attacked the Whitman Mission, Dr. Whitman was dismembered, and his corpse mangled beyond recognition. Narcissa was shot multiple times. Eleven others were killed, and 57 hostages were taken. Now aged 11, Helen Marr died while in captivity from mistreatment. Ultimately, the attack on the Whitman mission led to the Cayuse War. The Territory Legislature wasted no time in sending a representative to Washington DC to seek assistance from the federal government and to petition admission into the Union. The representative sent was Joe Meek, who pronounced himself Envoy Extraordinary and Minister Plenipotentiary from the Republic of Oregon to the Court of the United States. Meek was funded by the legislature for his trip to D.C., but in true ass-kicker style, he spent the money before he left Oregon on a huge send-off extravaganza. Penniless, Meek often grifted free meals from folks he met on his trip back east in exchange for stories from the untamed West, perhaps some of the same yarns we're retelling to this very day. Eventually, in 1850, Five Cayuse Braves were given up by tribal leaders and taken to Oregon City to be hanged. There is some debate as to whether these men actually committed the massacres or not, but nonetheless, they were found guilty. The hangings took place on June 3, 1850, with now United States Marshal Joe Meek officiating. The Cayuse men hated the thought of being hanged and with a panic-stricken flourish begged to be shot. Like men. According to the yarn, after getting a prayer from the priest, the turbulent souls walked by Joe Meek, who touched each on the arm, made some hand gestures, and whispered in their ear. After this quiet exchange, each of the condemned men seemed to have a change of attitude. They stood tall and proud and walked self assuredly to the scaffold. They stood unflinching as the nooses were tightened. And Joe Meek himself dropped the platform. Later, over drinks at a local tavern, Joe Meek was asked why these men had a sudden change of heart when facing their death. Displaying a depth of knowledge of the local nations and perhaps bending his federal position a bit, Meek responded, Why, I just told them they'd murdered my daughter, Helen Marr. For that I told them. I was taking blood vengeance, as any father has a right to do. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was brought to you by ORHistory.com, written by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Check out our website at ORHistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can also pick up Oregon history merchandise, learn about upcoming Oregon history events, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historians. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also like us on the Facebook. Our email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass!
1: I'm coming I say that like I want the whale to explode on my face, or I want your whale to explode on my face, or I j- like what? How do I say that? How do this I say right that up? Here is going <laughs> in the out. <laughs> I think,
0: the, I think the, the hey Oregon, I want your whale to explode on my face is, is probably the most. And then, that makes sense. People know. Okay.
1: Oh, Oregon, like that. Yeah, like that, like that. Oh, Oregon. So deep. Wait, that's not even like the line. That's <laughs> <laughs> not a talking line. That's... Say my name. <laughs> you should. You
0: should be like. You should do the one about the compost. And be like. Who, Oregon. No, no. no.
1: S- stick that can in the recycler. Yeah. <laughs>